Well, good morning. You may be seated and Happy New Year, everybody. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. And right off the bat, one of the first things I want to do is I really want to thank Adrian Moreno for doing a great job speaking last weekend. Didn't he do a great job? We're so blessed to have Adrian and Mark here. And uh, I have to tell you also, it has been an amazing past couple of weeks, like 13 days uh, for our family. I mean, first of all, for the TLC family, just two weekends ago, if you can believe it, it was not even Christmas yet. And we were in the midst of nine jam-packed Christmas candlelight concerts. Almost 16,000 people came to those nine concerts put together. It was just amazing. And then Christmas Eve and Christmas, and we had tons of relatives in and New Year's Eve. And then last weekend, some something very major happened in the history of our family. My daughter was married last Sunday night right here on this stage. And there she is, what a luminous bride, huh? I gotta tell you, to see her wed here in the church that we've called home for the last 20 years was just absolutely amazing for us. And I have to tell you, I was so nervous leading up to this wedding, far more nervous than I, than I ever am preaching uh, to you guys on Sunday morning. In fact, I was smiling in these pictures that were taken before the wedding, but that's a frozen smile. Can you tell? <laughs> my mind was a million miles away. I was thinking about my performance, even though I didn't have a 30-minute sermon. I had one, like half a line, but I was thinking about it over and over and over. Her mother and I do. No, that's not right. Her mother and I do. No, no, no. Her mother and I do. No, that's not. To the point where I didn't even remember how it was supposed to be intoned. Her mother and I do. Her mother and I do. What's the right way to say it? I was getting all confused. You can see it on my face, can't you? And then I was stressing over what I was wearing. Am I wearing the right thing here? Should I put my hands casually in my pockets or down at my sides? And then I'm going to have to walk down the aisle. And I was starting to practice how to walk natural. Have you ever told yourself, walk naturally? You can't do it. It's like, do I do heel toe first or toe first? I was just overthinking everything until I looked around and we were alone. Me and my daughter, standing in that lobby right there, waiting for those doors to open and the weddings to start. And I gotta tell you, time just stood still. And I looked at her and she looked at me and suddenly, flashback time. I remembered all the times she played wedding as a little girl. And this is the face I was seeing next to me that I was walking down the aisle. All those years that she and the neighbor girls played wedding and they had bridesmaids, and they had a bride. They even had a caterer making cookies. And there was never, ever a groom. And it didn't matter at all, you know? What's a groom? And, uh, and then I flashed forward, and I remember the time that she got a crush on a Christian singer. And she told me in the car, Daddy, I, I am serious. I'm going to work it out so that I can marry Phil Wickham. And she was just focused on that for a while. And then fast forward a few more years, and I remember the time that this little girl came back from her first year at college. 
And she said very seriously, Daddy, the way that these other girls want, just want to get married just sickens me, the way they're focused on it. just sickens me. If I get married at all, it, no offense, but, but I'm going to wait till I have a PhD and I'm old, like 32, you know? <laughs> and then I remembered the day that she came home and told me about the most wonderful boy she'd ever met. And now here I was, standing next to her, and the doors were about to open, and the wedding was about to begin, and I just started to cry. And I looked at her with tears rolling down my face, and then she started to cry. And she said, Daddy, don't make me cry. Tell some stupid jokes now. I said, I don't know any stupid jokes. <laughs> she said, yes, you do, the ones you tell all the time. And so, so I told one. And on the punchline, just like it was on cue, the doors opened. And it started. And one moment led into the next. Walk down, give her away, see the rings, see them kiss, see them rejoice, see them dance, dance with her one last time. And then it was over, and they were walking to their car, and they were moving to Hawaii, which is where they are right now. <laughs> it was awesome. But I got to tell you, remember I was telling you about how I was so focused and so worried about my performance and what I was going to say and how I was going to say it? Well, once it started, I never did worry again about how I was supposed to say anything. In fact, I even messed up a little bit. But you know what? It didn't matter because from the moment that she and I stepped down this aisle, I looked down at the end of this aisle and I saw her husband-to-be, Jordan, just, just beaming with love for her. And he's such a great guy, I'm pretty sure. And, um, <laughs> he better be. And I look down here where Scott's sitting right now, and my wife was sitting uh, right there. And she, the, the love and the joy was just overflowing from her in the form of tears. She was just leaking love and leaking joy all over the place. And, and I walked down and I, and I focused on the two of them, these two people I love so much and the person I love so much on my arm. And I, I never did think about myself again the whole night because I was just wrapped up in the love and the joy of the moment. Now here's my question for you. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been so absorbed in the love of somebody else that you forgot yourself, that you became totally unself-aware? Well, you know what? That is the key to life. That's the key to the spiritual life. And that's the key to change. Radical, deep, organic change. 
you know, it's the first weekend of the new year, and you're probably ready for a fresh start. I know I am. So why don't you grab your message notes that look like this. They're in the bulletins that you got when you came in. These will help you follow along. Because we're going to start the new year with a new three-week series. Like Adrian said last weekend, a lot of us set New Year's resolutions, right? Goals for the new year. But if we're honest, many of us don't really believe that things can change. Or even if they can change, we don't really believe that they will change. Well, in the next three weeks of this short little series, we're going to give you three steps you can take toward change. And this first week, we're going to talk about the foundation, the, 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 the real root of really radical change. And I call this message radical change because most people, even Christians, totally miss this even though it's on practically every single page of the Bible. And I call this radical change because I think this is going to blow your mind. And I call this radical change because it's, it's radically different than what any other system or, or any other person or any other magazine article is going to tell you about change. You will only find this concept of change in the pages of Scripture but it's so easy to miss because it is so radically different. In fact, it's so radically different that you're really going to ha have to hang with me for the next few minutes. But then it'll all come together at the end. And I think this could become the foundation for change that will last you not only through the rest of this year, but for your whole life and for eternity. So if you're ready for that, turn to... One of the most obscure passages of Scripture that we're going to go through this year, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through the beginning of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to that. If you don't have your Bibles with you here in the auditorium, there's Bibles right in front of you. And if you're watching over in the venue service in Munsky Hall, uh, there's paperback Bibles in the back. And if you're at home, you can go on to BibleGateway.com or, or another great website like that. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 21. Now, let me just set this up. So that you can understand what Paul's talking about in these verses. Uh, these are the ruins here of the city of Corinth. Now, 20 centuries ago, this was a bustling place. It was a port city like San Francisco, very cosmopolitan. It had one of the earliest Christian churches. But the Corinthian church was filled with division. This church had originally been planted by Paul. But then later, other preachers and evangelists came through, and, and they each sort of developed a fan base. And instead of people just rejoicing in all this diversity, like, wow, we got Renee, we got Adrian, we got Mark, we got Dave Hicks, we got all these wonderful pastors, right? Instead of people rejoicing in that, at the Corinthian church, it just resulted in power plays. Some of these different people were going, I should be in charge. No, I should be in charge. And some of the people in the church were going, well, I'm a fan of that person. Well, I'm a follower of that. I'm a disciple of that person. And Paul says, no, you've got to stop this division right now. Let's talk about humility. And let's get past all these power plays. So that's the, con the context for this. He says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you're of Christ and Christ is of God. This then is how you ought to regard us 
as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. And now watch this here. These next two verses are the key to what we're talking about this morning. So I want you to read these two verses out loud with me. So let me hear you. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Okay, right out of the gate, I want to give thanks to Tim Keller for insights about this. I heard a sermon by him that changed my life. And what I'm basically going to do today is paraphrase him. And here's why. Because if you want to change, really the question is, what's the human problem? Maybe I want to lose weight, or I drink too much, or I'm an alcoholic, or I tend to lose my temper. But what's the underlying problem? Is it just that I'm stressed, or just that I don't have enough willpower, or don't have enough friends, or don't have enough self-belief? What's the problem? How do I change? Well, you'll see on page one of your notes here, the traditional answer for centuries in human society, the answer to why people got into trouble was hubris. That's the Greek word for pride. People just think too highly of themselves. That's the problem, thinking too much of yourself, getting kind of too big for your britches. And so the traditional answer to this problem is shame. Fall in line, feel guilty. Okay, that's the traditional answer, but now our culture is exactly the opposite. Modern answer, the problem is thinking too little of myself. The idea that we have is that people misbehave because of a lack of self-esteem, right? The reason that husbands beat their wives, the reason that people steal, the reason that people do wrong is because people have low esteem, and so the solution is self-esteem. They need to be pumped up. They have too low a view of themselves. So traditionally, the problem was seen as hubris or pride. So to fix people, we shamed them, knocked them down, called them bad, locked them up, disgraced them. Currently, the problem is seen as the opposite, low self-esteem. And both of these approaches, according to the Bible, are sort of jumbled and simplistic. In fact, there was an article in New York Times Magazine called The Trouble with Self-Esteem, reporting what the experts have known for years, and that's this, there's no evidence that low self-esteem is really a problem that contributes to other problems. The author writes, three withering studies on self-esteem have been published in the U.S. in the last year and have the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to people around them. Feeling bad about yourself is not the source of any of our country's biggest problems. And she says it'll take years and years for modern Americans to really accept this. And here's the reason why. What's attractive about the low self-esteem theory of behavior is that you don't have to make any moral judgments to fix people up. You don't have to call somebody bad. They just have bad self-esteem, right? However, it doesn't work. What's fascinating about the passage we're looking at today is that this is an approach to changing human behavior that's totally different from the traditional shame-based approach and totally different from the modern or postmodern self-esteem-based approach. This is going an entirely different direction. What is it? What's the biblical answer? 
Well, the Bible says, here's the human problem. The natural condition of the human ego, the natural state of the self. Just a few verses after our text in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, Then you will not be puffed up. Now, Paul's using a word for puffed up here that's also translated pride in some other versions that's very unusual. It's not the hubris word for pride. It's a word used six times for pride in 1 Corinthians. It's used by no other author in the Bible. Paul himself uses it only one other time outside this book. And most commentators now recognize that Paul's trying to teach the Corinthians something by the way he uses this word in this book. Because it's a word for pride that means overinflated or swollen or distended beyond its proper size. This is related to the word for bellows. And it is a very painful picture. It evokes the image of something that has been overinflated because air has been pumped into it and it's now ready to burst, much like this balloon. Paul's saying this is a picture of human pride, of the natural human ego. Only imagine this balloon as your stomach, just distended and full of, not of food, but just of gas. Some of you, that is your actual state right now, but that's not important right now. Paul says that is the natural condition of the human ego. And I think this image is so evocative that we're meant to, to meditate on it a little bit here. And again, here's some of Tim, Tim Keller's uh, insights. Paul, by using this word, is saying the natural human ego is, first of all, empty. And you see that at the top of page two of your notes. It's puffed up with nothing but air. See, there's a God-sized hole in your soul. And so you try to fill it up with something, something that'll give you worth, something that'll give you purpose, something that'll give you a sense of specialness. But of course, if you put anything in the place of God, it's not going to be big enough. It's going to rattle around in there. It's going to be empty, and it'll be painful, right? When something's swollen and distended, it's painful. You ever notice that you don't really recognize or notice the parts of your body unless there's something wrong with one of them, right? Like, I didn't come to church today thinking, my toes feel awesome. <laughs> Woo! You know? My elbow is working great. I only think about them when there's something wrong with them. And that means there's obviously something wrong with my ego because it calls attention to itself all the time. Ah, oh, I got my feelings hurt. I feel insignificant. I felt really snubbed. I wonder what they thought of me. It's hard to get through a day without our ego calling attention to itself in some way. It's like a constantly stubbed toe. There's something wrong with it because it's always calling attention to itself. And consequently, because it's empty and because it's painful, it's incredibly busy. It's busy because it's trying to fill its emptiness up. It's busy with two different things, comparing and boasting. Paul says, then you will not take pride by comparing one against another. Uh, C.S. Lewis's famous chapter on pride 
He says, pride is by nature competitive. It's a great quote. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. You may think you're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but really you aren't. You're only proud of being more successful or intelligent or good-looking than other people. And when you're in the company of somebody more successful or intelligent or good-looking than you, you lose all pleasure in what you had because you really had no pleasure in it. You were proud of it. Pride destroys the ability to have any real pleasure because we're so busy comparing and we're busy trying to rack up achievements to boast about. Now, I have a teenage son, uh, and he's awesome. Any other parents of teenagers here? Can I just see a show of hands? Because there's strength in numbers. Look at that. That's, that's awesome. Well, listen, I read the articles, and I see the emails that come from school. I watch some of the other parents and I know that you're supposed to encourage your kids these days to do lots of stuff, not really to make them better people, but why? To get them into college, to rack up a resume, right? How do you go feed the hungry at the homeless center? I don't really want to do that. I know, but it would look so good on your college application. <laughs> you know what, why don't you join the chess club? I hate chess. I know, but the chess club would look great on your college application. Well, maybe that's okay for high school, but listen, a lot of people live their whole lives like that. Only doing things in order to look good so they can get more friends or do more job advancement. We're busy, we're empty, we're in pain, we're busy, and we're fragile. Because if you're overinflated, then what happens is you're in constant danger of being deflated. We're fragile. See, if you're puffed up and not filled up by something other than air, then whether you're puffed up or whether you're empty, it's the same thing because you're just empty the whole time. Now, I want to quote somebody as an example of this, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. I am not, it's a person you're going to recognize, but I am not saying that this person is worse than me or worse than any of you. I'm not judging this person. In fact, I think she actually shows a tremendous self-awareness, uh, and I, I really actually admire her for her candor here. But look at this fascinating quote. Madonna said, my drive in life comes from a constant fear of being mediocre. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but soon I fear I'll be mediocre again unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. She actually knows herself better than most of us know ourselves. She's saying my ego cannot be satisfied. She's saying my desire for self-worth is actually never fulfilled. Why? Because my natural pride is insatiable. It's a vacuum. It's a black hole. I become somebody and I realize I still have to become somebody. Don't blame her. She's ahead of most of us because at least she realizes the truth about how fragile our natural condition is because it's empty and it ends up being completely self-focused on filling the emptiness. Now, by contrast... 
Look at how Paul's self-identity works, how his ego works. This is the supernatural possibility. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Now, the word judge there is the same word for verdict. And he says, one thing I want you to know is, I don't care what you think. And I don't care what any human, no matter how important they are, I don't care what they think. He says, I've come to the place where my identity is not tied in any way to your verdict or evaluation of me. Now, these days, people would say, that's right, Paul. It shouldn't matter what other people think. The only thing that should matter is what? What you think about you. Now, is that where Paul goes? No. Paul says, indeed, I don't even judge myself. He says, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. Why not? Because he says, that's a trap, too. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. He won't fall into the... the, the fallacy of thinking high self-esteem is the answer. See, Hitler probably had great self-esteem. Hitler probably thought he was awesome. But that didn't make him innocent, right? And Paul says, that doesn't make me innocent either. Paul says, I'm not looking to you for my identity, and I'm not, not looking to me for my identity. As Tim Keller says, he says, Paul is moving off our map. Paul is moving into territory that most of us haven't even ever thought about, let alone actually experienced. He's saying, I'm, I'm so free of worrying about what other people think. I don't care about what you think. I don't care about what any human court thinks. I don't even care what I think. Paul was the, a man of just this, this incredible serenity. Because I want you to think of this. Here, Paul, by any standards, right, Paul has to be one of the great movers and shakers of human history. He's got to be in the top ten for sure, probably the top five or six. Changed the world with his writings and with his work. And yet, look at what he says in 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Not was the worst, am the worst. So now, how could somebody be totally aware of his severe moral flaws and yet not be writhing in guilt because he doesn't connect his sins with conclusions about whether or not he's bad? He says, yeah, absolutely, I'm the chief of sinners, but that's not going to stop me from establishing the church and changing history. He's totally aware of all of his faults. He knows he's far from perfect, and yet he doesn't condemn himself. Really? Paul is totally astounding. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. Is that high self-esteem? No. Is that low self-esteem? No. He's stopping the whole game. He's like, I, I, I don't even go there in any direction. Paul's ego isn't puffed up. It's filled up with something substantial. Paul's saying, I've come to the place where I'm not even thinking about myself anymore. And this is the biblical key to really radical change. Not thinking less of yourself. Not thinking more of yourself. But in fact, it's forgetting myself. Actually forgetting myself. Not going, 
I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm going to be a better person. I, 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 I. It's forgetting about yourself. Do you remember how I was so focused even on how I was going to walk and how I was going to intone my one line at the wedding, but then I was just distracted by the beautiful bride on my arm, my daughter, and my wife, and, and that was nothing compared to what I saw in Jordan's eyes. Elizabeth's groom, man, he, he, had, he had only had eyes for her. He was, he was absorbed in his love for her, and she was struck by his love for her as well. Well, the Bi- listen, the Bible describes your relationship with Jesus as being like that. Like he's the groom and we are all the bride. And as we are absorbed with his love for us, we totally forget about walk this way, say it like that, and we relax and we just stop thinking about ourselves. And then what happens is we start doing loving actions, not because we're reading them off a list or have them memorized, but they flow naturally because we're walking toward his love. Tim Keller calls it the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. Now think of what it would be like to really live like that. Just imagine that. On the one hand, your ego wouldn't be devastated by criticism because if you're devastated by criticism, then you're putting too much stock in what people think. But the answer is not, well, here's what, I, what they think. I know what I think. See, on the one hand, you have people who can't take criticism. Then on the other hand, you have people who never take criticism because they don't think they ever need criticism, right? And those are both problems. But if you've got a biblically healthy ego, you can say, oh, criticism, it's a chance to change. It's a chance to learn. Man, don't you long to be that kind of person? Don't you long to be the kind of person who can walk by the mirror and not stop to admire yourself? Check me out. Going to do a Kaepernick? Look at that, you know? (laughs) And on the other hand, you don't walk by a mirror and cringe. Oh, I'm looking so old and so fat, right? You're not impressed and you're not cringing. Wouldn't you long to be the kind of person? Wouldn't you long to be the kind of person who on the one hand doesn't daydream about hitting self-esteem home runs. Oh, if I could only do that, then I'd show them. Man, then I'd really be loved. But on the other hand, also doesn't cringe for days whenever you do something wrong. I'm so stupid, stupid, stupid. Wouldn't it be nice to just be free of all that? Thinking about the Winter Olympics coming up, wouldn't you love to be able to be the skater that wins the silver? and yet still is able to rejoice in the artistry of the one who won the gold. And that's where you can be. Now, some of you go, well, Renee, that sounds awesome, but I actually don't know anyone who fully lives like that, including you, Renee. Totally fair, because you'd be right. But we can incrementally get there. How? How do I get there? Well, you have to read closely. Paul says, number one, I don't care what you think. (laughs) Number two, I don't care what I think. So what does he care about? 
He says, even if my conscience is clear, that doesn't make me innocent. And the word he uses for innocent is the same word he uses everywhere else for justifies. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. Then he says, it's the Lord who judges me. I only care what God thinks. See, in the world, we're in a trial. It's like we go to a courtroom every single day. It's just the truth. People are judging you. They really are. If you're a teacher, your students are. If you're a boss, your employees are. If you're an employee, your boss is. Every single day, it's like you're on trial. And that can weigh you down sometimes. Yet Paul says, I don't care what they think. I don't, I don't even care what I think. I only care what God thinks. And so what does God say? Well, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, the trial is over. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. That's the verdict. The trial's over. The verdict is in. And God has declared me righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know what's interesting? In every other human system, the performance leads to the verdict. There's a verdict based on what I just did. But in Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. It's because God has declared me to be free and to be loved and to be fully chosen, I am a blessing to, other, to others because I've already been blessed. How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ went into the courtroom and he took our place. He took the trial we deserved. He took the condemnation we deserved on the cross. And he says, I did this for you so that the Father declares you free. Now, I really want to emphasize this because if you're just here checking this out and maybe you never really understood the difference between Christian change and any other kind of change, and maybe you thought being a Christian means... You're going to try really hard to be good this year. You're going to go to church. You're going to read the Bible. That makes you a Christian. That makes you a better person. No. Christian change operates totally differently than any other system for change. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You're free. And then you change because you are blessed, not to be blessed. Now, there's a lot to this, and maybe you're wondering, well, why did Jesus have to die? How does that work? If you're new, stay, keep coming until you understand the whole picture. But on the other hand, some of you say, well, Renee, technically, I believe what you're saying. I've been coming to Twin Lakes for years, but every day I find myself getting sucked back into the courtroom. And every day I find myself worrying again about, about what other people are going to think of me and, and how they're judging me. And, and I beat myself up and I judge myself and I care too much about what I think. All I can say from personal experience is that you have to keep preaching the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel of grace. And when you find yourself coming into that courtroom again, on the spot, say, what am I doing in this courtroom? You, I don't have to worry about what others think. I don't have to worry about what I think. I only have to care about what God thinks. And he says, I'm his beloved child. Remember the verse we started with, Paul says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or future, all are yours, and you're of Christ." and Christ is of God, you don't have to strive anymore for it. It's all yours. 
ahead of your performance. And so you can rest in God's verdict. Listen, when you feel under trial, remind yourself, court is adjourned. Court is adjourned. And then go live like it. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? With our heads bowed, what we're going to do right now is to just give you a moment to apply what we've talked about. To not think about yourself, but to focus on the love of the bridegroom for you. I want you to think of looking in the eyes of Jesus. And when you think of looking in his eyes, what do you think you're going to see there? There's no shaming there. There's no trying to make you feel guilty there. You know what you see there? There's only grace. There's only love. With your head still bowed, you know, I, I used to think of communion as a time to morbidly think of all my sins. But it's not. It's a time to think of Jesus and what he did for you so that you're free. Heavenly Father, help us to pull this truth into our own lives and begin to practice it. How free we would be, how different we would be. Show us how to make this central. Show us how to be everything we can be in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.